Oh, hi, everybody. Look at that. It is the 30th of September, 2021. This is episode 89 of my live chat. My name is Luke Thomas. How are you doing? This is the first one I have done on this channel in six, seven, eight months, something like that. Maybe even longer than that. Maybe over a year or so. I'm not even sure at this point. Um, quite a while. Quite a while it has it has been. Um, I have a lot to say about that. I have a lot to answer for. You guys have put your questions in. We will go, customarily as you might be aware, about an hour and some change. First things first, as you can see the motion graphic right there, look at that. Hit the subscribe button. You know, I made a promise a while ago that I was going to try and get this channel back going again. Slowly but surely, we're rolling out some of the features, uh, this being one of them. Also, I think it's enabled. If you would like to ask a question, you got to use the super chat. If you use the super chat, I will get to your questions at the end of the, or close to the end um, of today's episode. Yeah, the super chat is back. People actually missed it. Some people were like, well, I got to pay you to answer a question because it's an easy way to raise revenue for this operation. I want to pay someone to help me and I need uh, a little extra income to do that. You don't have to do that. You're under zero obligation to do it. But if you do, uh, we will get to that at the end. Okay, thumbs up, hit subscribe. Welcome back, everybody. The live chat, right back where I think it was supposed to be, and uh, and I'm glad to do it. So, without further ado, let us get this party started. All right, there we are. Let me turn the subscribe off thing. First of all, before we get to any questions, let me just give a bit of an opening statement here that I think is kind of important. Number one, thank you for watching today. If you watched live, if you watched after the fact, for folks who might be wondering, is this episode going to go in the podcast? Yes, not the MK podcast, my podcast feed that has been dormant. I will put that in the comments below and I will pin it to the top if you want to find it. Um, so we will get that going again as well. I'm not sure what else I will put on that, but for sure, as soon as this episode is over, I'm going to download the audio and then put it on the podcast platform. Okay, so I think it's on iTunes still if you want to find it and uh, Apple and every other place. It, the, the feed should still be up. It just hasn't been updated in however long it's been since I updated it. Um, so that's the first and second part. Let me say thirdly, part of the reason why this live chat was moved off of this channel and then to MK is because I really wanted to give MK a, a, as much of a boost as I could to get things going. And, um, you know, we're not at our first goal of 100K yet, but I think we're like 1,500 subs short like that should probably happen in about the next month or so. And so it just didn't make a lot of sense to keep this on there. This is really sort of my thing. And more to the point, like on MK, I was kind of under some obligation to stay away from some topics that that the live chat, I think, benefited from by moving just beyond combat sports, whether I'm right or I'm wrong. There does appear to at least be some kind of appetite beyond that. Besides, all the stuff I'm doing on MK is like there's a ton of stuff over there that's just combat sports. Um, to the extent that there's audience interest beyond that, this is probably a better place for that. And I think the other thing I would say is, um, you know, it probably sent the wrong message to a degree to like take this and move it off there and then like just abandon the channel, at least seemingly abandon the channel. As I've explained, it was less an abandonment, although I can understand why folks thought that that was the case, but it was more just I needed a break. I needed a break. I just couldn't, I needed a, I needed to catch my breath and quite literally focus on my health and, and everything else. And uh, all that's a work in progress, of course. But um, I'm not glad that the the channel was shut down for a while. I'm, I'm actually really upset about it in, in some ways. But I don't regret taking a break. There should have been other things that happened. But 
in any case, those days are behind me. I feel uh, better now. And uh, I just want to apologize to the viewers of this podcast because there's been some that have stuck with me for a very long time. There's some that are new. And either way, I appreciate you. But it probably sent the wrong message about what a priority it was to me to like shut down the channel, move the live chat. It's like, well, if the live chat can just be taken anywhere and the channel doesn't matter that much, what do you really want from us? It's a fair point. So my hope is that um, it's going to take me a while, a good long while, to get my personal channel back to where I, I need it to be. And of course, you know, with everything MK, I mean, we're only adding content over there. We're not subtracting. You know, that Monday podcast we're going to be doing, I'm going to be doing, that's just MMA, I think is a testament to that, right? So if you are an MK fan, do not despair. This will still be here on this channel. And then we're, as I mentioned, we're already adding um, tons of stuff. I haven't even told you guys about all the stuff we're going to be rolling out. The Monday post MK podcast that I do on the rest of the fight card, that's just one piece. There's other pieces coming. So... Um, so thank you for sticking around. Sorry for jerking everybody around and making you go a bunch of different places. I'm sorry about the state of the channel. Like I said, I needed the break, but there was probably better ways to organize that absence. In any case, um, we're back. We are back. We're back. I don't think the place that we need to be. Uh, I was happy to put it over there, but you know, it's probably a better fit here on my personal channel. And, uh, if you stuck around really, really, really genuinely, sincerely appreciate it. You're uh, it is noticed and it is um, it is valued. It is valued. All right. With that in mind, uh, let's get to some of the questions, shall we? Let me pull this up. All right. And let's go to the community tab. All right. As you know, on every Wednesday, if you don't know, now you do. Every Wednesday, I, I'm going to post a picture that's going to be an open thread for questions. So if you go to youtube.com slash Luke Thomas, you'll see a series of tabs near the top of the page that say home, videos, playlists, community store, channels, and about. If you go to the community side, every Wednesday, I'll post a picture of something, and then I'll ask for questions. In that thread, you can leave them there. Today, there are 242, and as I mentioned, if you do the super chat, I'll get to it at the end. But Certainly, you're under no obligation to do that. Okay, with that in mind, salud. Mm, that's good. And um, let's get to it. All right, first question. Uh, hey, Luke, can you talk more about your struggles with alcohol that you recently mentioned on MK as someone who has had my own struggles? I'm curious how you were able to take your life in a different direction. Much love, stay frosty. Well, um, fellas, ladies, I don't know that I've got a great answer for you. I don't know that I ever um, meaningfully addressed it until even kind of recently, uh, to be candid with you. The part that got really bad, so I was, I think if, I'm, if my math is right, God, it's been so long, you can lose track of some of these things, but I'm pretty sure... Yeah, it was October of 2003. So it's, so my mom died in October of 2003, and that set into motion uh, a series of, uh, you know, self-destructive behaviors, as, which, you know, is not altogether uncommon whatsoever when people experience um, trauma of various kinds. Um, there was a six-month period there where the drinking was, was really out of control, uh, and I kind of just... I won't say went cold turkey, but, you know, took personal initiative after a series of, 
I won't say interventions from friends, but warnings from them um, to dial it back uh, from what I had been doing, which is just everyday blackout, you know, or pretty close to that. Not, not every day, but blackout, but everyday drinking for sure. And more than that, like everyday drunk. Not every day so drunk you blacked out, but you know, blackout three, four, five days a week. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. Um, but I don't know that I ever really fixed the problem at all. Uh, frankly, that part of the issue got fixed by me just sort of saying like, "Whoa, I've got a little bit too much to lose here," and it was obviously having, as you can imagine, some adverse health consequences, but. Uh, I didn't go to therapy until later. I think I was like 25, 26 or some, maybe even 27 before I sought out like therapy for her death. And in that time, I wasn't drinking like I was before, but I was definitely drinking way too much. And the problem was here was, there's just a reality. I was getting hammered every Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I mean like pretty, pretty banged up. And this was at 52 weeks a year. 52 weeks a year I was doing that to say nothing of happy hours and everything else. And so what I ended up doing was I took it from a high to more of like a medium. Uh, when I say medium, I don't mean like moderate use. I mean like medium abuse. <laughs> we're, we're all talking like on an abuse scale here. And then I just learned to live with that. And I probably lived with that even through therapy. You know what? That's not quite true. With therapy, even that got a little bit better. Although I was still drinking on the weekends pretty bad. But maybe like middle of the week, it wasn't quite as bad. Um, in fact, there was even a moment where there was a bit of a health kick happening during the drinking, which is kind of weird. And because I was so young, I kind of got away with it a little bit. But neither here nor there. What I ended up doing was just becoming like a perpetual drunk, honestly. Uh, the thing that changed was I was full of aggression early and then it just became, I turned into over time a quite a peaceful and happy drunk. I, I don't really know exactly how that happened, but it did. Um, and I just kind of folded it into the fabric of my life. And because I could get away with that through my 20s and then parts of my 30s, I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to it. But um, in you know, starting in my mid to late 30s and then beyond, it just dawned on me. I was like, dude, why am I drinking this much? I'm still drinking from the inheritance of 2003, right? I mean, it's, it's different now. It's certainly not as bad, but it's definitely not good. Um, and I, you know, I quit cigarettes once. Folks always ask me, what's the key to quitting cigarettes? Like I have any real expertise. I just stopped one day. At one point I was just like, I don't want these anymore. And when you don't want them anymore, there obviously can be pharmacological issues that relate to addiction or use that don't make it so succinct, but it was stop pretty much thereafter in this particular case you know there's probably a bit of a substitution that has happened versus eradication by virtue of having a marijuana license but even then like the amount of overall let's say euphoric drug use that i'm looking for has gone down substantially i guess over time between the consequences slapping me in the face i always got to like the brink of something pretty bad but i could never actually be so reckless as to go over it i guess that's just a like I had something internally that just wouldn't allow me, but a lot of people may not necessarily have that instinct or who knows, everyone's troubles are a little bit defined by a, a, a wide set of factors. So to answer your question, I, I don't have a good answer for you. I didn't take care of myself properly when I should have, um, for a long time, for a long time. And, uh, don't do that. 
don't do that. The professional help definitely helped trying to find structure and, you know, uh, the company of others and community and, you know, having a happy dating life and trying to find exercise. All that will, for me, all of it brought it down. So slowly over time, it just sort of got a little bit better, but it never got healthy. And then, uh, you know, in just the last few years, I've just been like, dude, I just can't do this to myself anymore. The costs were so heavy. It's just like, I'm out. I'm out. Uh, do you think Chandler's chin has somewhat expired? He has lost all of his recent fights by TKO and is arguably fighting one of the hardest hitting fighters at 155. Expired? No. Like, do I think that it, it, there's no sturdiness to it whatsoever? Uh, no, I don't think that. But listen, man, this isn't even in like a insult towards him. I, I think very highly of his fighting abilities, but like you just can't go through what he's gone through and be the same on the other side. It doesn't matter how mentally tough you are. Your body has has limits. It has limits. So like, do I think that his chin has been affected by the accumulative damage and that it makes him in this fight probably very much the aggressor that Justin Gaethje is and in fact in some ways probably more the aggressor but uh, makes him somewhat less sturdy based on what we have visibly seen from what he can tolerate and not? Yeah, I think it does. I think there's probably a fair case to make that Gaethje is, again, um, you know, I think you can make an argument that Chandler is a slightly harder puncher but the overall striking prowess would certainly go for Gaethje in my mind at this point. And Gaethje, even if he's not the same puncher, he's pretty close. So, like, dude, we're talking about a guy who can thump and has gotten only better at finding it. Um, you know, Gaethje is formidable, but at the same time, to look at Chandler's chin, like, there have been guys that have come through before where their chin is so not there and just the way they were born. You know, it was they didn't necessarily take a ton of damage. They just didn't have a great ability to take a shot. There have been some fighters like that in the UFC, even, believe me. Um, you know, Jonathan Goulet is one of those where his, you know, his chin just wasn't that great, even though he was a very, very talented fighter. Like, he knew how to fight. Uh, I don't think he is compromised in that way. However, against a puncher and striker, the likes of Gaethje, you know, Ch Chandler can talk all he wants, and I think he will, and I, and I believe him. I, I don't think it's bluffing. He intends to push... Gaethje on his heels, but that will come with significant danger. No doubt about it. Thoughts on Dana's rant after the Contender Series? I don't I don't really like get super... It's just funny, man. I, I've heard all of this before. All of the arguments that get circulated now, some of them are new because there's new players like um, with Oscar De La Hoya and whatnot, but you know, Dana didn't didn't always beef with him. In fact, De La Hoya at a time was sort of like a guy who you can go back and look at UFCs in like the fifties and sixties. What I mean by that is the number like UFC 51, 63, whatever. Uh, and I think you'll see like De La Hoya in the audience. You know, he was sort of a prized uh, guest at times. I could be getting the, the dates of those wrong, but I do recall him being there in, 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 in pre like UFC explosion popularity kind of way. But, dude, I've seen all these arguments before. Like, for example, let's take the De La Hoya one, where they look at the card that he had promoted with Golden Boy that had Chuck and Tito on it and how underpaid some of the fighters were, not just from his promises, but relative to some of the purses that they got in um, UFC. And then there was the card recently, which was not the Chuck Tito card, but, like, you know, the average purse was, like, 2K or something. I would have two answers for this. One, yeah, the arguable monopoly is probably going to be able to pay a lot more than upstarts, especially when there are conditions in the market that solidify the UFC's ability to hold on to elite talent. 
right? So yeah, like the idea that Golden Boy, I mean, is, does Oscar say things that he then has no intention of backing up? Like, is he a hypocrite in the way that Dana accuses? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair argument, actually. Sure. I don't think Dana's wrong. He's probably right. Um, and he is also right that the way to get the most money is to go to the UFC. That is also true. But, you know, comparing what Golden Boy MMA operations are to UFC operations, this is comparing Tesla to the kid who is putting together a bicycle in his dad's garage with tin cans and, you know, uh, paper clips. I mean, it's just not... These aren't even remotely comparable things uh, whatsoever is the first thing I'd say. But either way... It's irrelevant. Around 2012 or so, ESPN at the time, Josh Gross was working there, and he had a big piece on Fighter Pay. He was not the only one who wrote it. It was in conjunction with some of the other investigative reporters who worked there at the time. And one of the tricks, or whatever you want to say, that the UFC did at the time was they sat down, ESPN did, um, I think it was even part of an Outside the Lines feature, uh, they sat down with Lorenzo Fertitta. Lorenzo, I've always sort of thought, was the more thoughtful uh, public-facing executive, personally speaking. I've interacted with him once. We had a nice conversation at Madison Square Garden. I, I, um, you know, I disagree with some of the things he's done as a business practice, but he seems like an eminently reasonable person, although who knows, I could be totally wrong about that too. But that's what it seemed like. Um, he was very friendly. He was very professional. He was very friendly. I'll, I'll, I'll say that for him. But the point being is this. The UFC recorded the entirety of the interview. And then the and then the full recording of the interview because you know you can if you guys don't know this if you sit down with somebody a fighter for like an hour of tape maybe ten minutes makes that to television and that's asking dude ten minute ten minutes of ESPN television time is a lot you're not even going to get that much you'll get five minutes on the air and so a lot is left on the cutting room floor there were portions of that interview where Lorenzo was like uh huh well let's look at the boxing events that air on ESPN these were like Friday night fights cards that you know Teddy Atlas used to call back in the day and he'd be like you know ESPN is broadcasting fights where people make significantly less than that they would make on a UFC card because again you know there's going to be guys in that card and you know three fights in that are making 500 bucks and they were like no one makes 500 bucks on a UFC card again we are talking about apples and oranges but it's the same trick you see, it's the same trick. It's, well, no one else is paying more. Well, dude, no one else can pay more because you guys are being sued because you might be a monopoly. We'll see, we'll see what the court says, of course. I mean, I, I, these, these are complicated debates, but, you know, uh, you got control of 80% of the fucking market. Yeah, you better pay more. And I've seen this trick used a million times. So, like, this, I, I said the same thing to Rogan. I'll just say it now. Dude, the argument's over, man. It's over. It's over. You know, I feel like Vince Carter at the slam dunk contest. It's over. You know, what, what is supposed to be done about it, if anything, is wide open for debate. What role do the fighters have in, in being responsible collectively and seeing themselves as a collective whole to get the job done? What role does, uh, is the Alley Act a good idea? What are some of the benefits and the shortcomings of unionization? Again, how likely is all of this? Or should people just be... You know, all of those things are going to be hard to produce. Again, you can make the most money with the UFC as they make more money proportionally. The fighters make more money. Again, you can you can have that debate a million times over. But the rest of the evidence is not ambiguous. It's not a difficult call. It's not hard to read. It's not 50-50. It's not up in the air. It's pretty clear that the overwhelming majority of the money, uh, upwards of 80%, uh, goes to UFC. And they have created a system by which they are going to maintain that relationship to 
um, athlete costs over time, even as they grow or whatever else the case they may be. They have added additional streams of revenue that we understand through like crypto.com, um, you know, uh, sponsorships and, and a, a few other uh, pieces along the way that matters that is different, certainly. But that's it. That's it. And so either you believe that they are entitled to a greater share relative to what their peers get by comparison, uh, or you don't, or you don't. Uh, but by every measurement, that's, they're significantly under, by every known measurement that I'm aware of anyway, they are significantly underpaid. And so, you know, you can lash out, you can say this, you can say that, you can do the same sort of argumentation tricks over time and People will be, in many cases, convinced by them. I think people really like, he doesn't do it as much as he used to, but I think people really like fire and brimstone Dana. Fine, if you like it, that's cool too. Like, And also, I said this on Rogan Show, I'll repeat it here too. Dude, it's a business. Like, They're going to run it how they're going to run it. As long as they don't break the laws, if you don't like it and you're one of the parties being aggrieved here because of fighter pay, it's, it's your responsibility to do something about it or, or don't, or don't. But... Um, but it's not it's not it's not anyone else's responsibility, and we're not accusing the UFC of. Well, I suppose if they become a monopoly, then there are some cures to the market that are in order. But based on the known laws as we understand it, the classification of monopolies is, is a sort of higher order, almost theoretical classification. In terms of like the day to day above board practices, dude, they're all above board. They're all above board. It's a publicly traded or its ownership group is a publicly traded fucking company. They're going to do what they're going to do. So you can get mad at that and you could say it's this and it's abusive and whatever else you want to say. Fine. Look at look for a cure for that. But that's going to continue. It's going to continue. All of this, we, we the, 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 the show is well understood at this point. The debate that's left is what comes next. Not are they paid great. Dude, <laughs> that's a silly argument. Like it's you can't make it with a straight face. And there's one other argument that he makes that I think is actually kind of interesting. Which is that, you know, hey, we, we, we reinvest into the sport. We, um, we built these performance institutes here. We're putting one in Mexico. There's the China one. And there might be more than just one. Um, and, you know, they're working on television deals across the world to get it. And then they have more international fighters than ever. Like, all that is true. Like, you can easily make an argument that the UFC, while they have been um, the recipient of perhaps more money than they should have been, it is not as if it has been for ends that don't have a longitudinal component. Like, they clearly do. They clearly do. And the UFC, you have to understand something, the UFC made a lot of errors, and Dana will tell you this, made a lot of errors up front. They thought that they could map the UFC onto the map that boxing had. So they thought, our next stop will be UK and Mexico. That's where we're going to go, and that's where everything's going to be next for us because these are societies that um, embrace and popularize and there's lots of money in combat sports at least at scale right and it turned out those were some of the most difficult markets for them it turned out japan would have well japan had its own issues but canada was a lot easier brazil was an absolute gold mine and then in the aughts well actually just post aughts brazil had this economic boom for a long time and you know they were doing shows down there seven times a year in 2014 so the 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 the, the argument there would be yes it is true that they have um invested money in longitudinal ways that will not just benefit them but the broader MMA economy other promoters and everything in that sort of chain of custody there that is all true but the question is one were these strictly altruistic of course not there is at every 
every act they've done has been, and understandably, again, they're a business, but every act has a component of like, this is mostly going to benefit us, number one, which is fine. That's what businesses do. But I'm saying like, this is not, they're not Mother Teresa. And then the second component is like, was that your money to spend? I mean, dude, let's reflect for a second on what just happened to Brian Ortega. Right, Brian Ortega is the only fighter in UFC history to absorb more than 200 significant strikes um, in a single UFC bout. He was the only one before, and now he's got two of them. Dude, he's 31 years old. Like that, those kinds of beatings, if you're going to take those kinds of beatings, which by the way are medically inadvisable, but that's prize fighting to a degree, you best be getting paid what you're owed. You better be you better be making the kind of money that you are entitled to. And if you believe that the fighters are entitled to roughly close in a 50-50 deal, something approximating half-half, they're not close. They're not close. So this idea of like the paternalistic, like, dude, every company and the people who run it, they're going to see their story as where they're the heroes of it, right? That's just that's that's everyone's gonna see their own personal story. I see that in my channel, you see that in your life, everyone sees that. It's a, it's a common reflection. But they see in this like, listen, we are the ones in charge, we're the smartest guys in the room, we're the only ones that can do this. And by the way, we're smart enough to like, spread some of the wealth around in terms of you know the growing component of this. There's, there's a lot of truth to that, dude. There's a lot of truth to that. But, but um, you know, I'll, what is mostly driving their actions is securing the marketplace for the future. Uh, against rivals and so that rivals don't ever really have a chance to exist and it is also a question of like whether it's their money to spend but like you know the the last thing I'll say on this is because I'm already at 327 but it's <laughs> the UFC has been they're very they're very well run but they have also somewhat benefited from the fact they've had a lot of critics that were just easy to poke holes in in terms of their arguments, right? They've had a lot of critics like, you know, when you're beefing with Gary Shaw, dude, it's easy to come across looking like the guys who have their head on straight. You know what I mean? And and, and obviously there's also a strong argument to make that they did, but you know what I mean? Like they've had these rivals who are like, they were not hard to beat up in the media. And Bob Arum has been, you know, Bob Arum promoted Ali. You know, here's a guy who in his 80s is still doing highly relevant boxing, the mo some of the most relevant boxing known on the planet today, but you know, he's also had a bunch of missteps too. Um, it, it's easy to be like, yo, Bob Arum does shit that we can criticize. They've, they've, they've always had these, they've never really had a lot of guys who were hard to impugn in terms of their character or, um, the sanctity of their message. You know, when are you going to have a video with Jack Slack? You guys mention each other every so often, and if your breakdowns tend to be different enough in perspective to be interesting. Well, I think I'd have to get over to the UK, and I doubt he'd meet me because uh, he likes to keep his identity private, which, you know, all these years later, I kind of admi uh, oh, I admired it before, but like now I'm like sad that I don't have that, that anonymity. Um, that, well, by personal anonymity, anyway. When I was at that Guns and I went to a Guns N' Roses show on Sunday, and I must have been recognized like seven times by the Baltimore Donks. It was wild. Um, it's all of them were nice. Like it's a, it's a, it's, 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 I think to the uninitiated, it sounds like super cool, but, uh, not that I'm famous or anything, but like, I, I would give that up for like 50,000 more dollars. You know what I mean? That's not hard for me to give up. Uh, but in any case, um, he's a big reason why I'm always like, dude, you got to hear what other analysts have to say. I'm always, to the extent that I even am one, but, uh, 
I, I just give it a name because it's easier that way. I don't, I, you know, I'm just a dude on YouTube, but uh, I like it because he does see things often quite differently, and I, I purposely avoid his work, certainly pre-fight, but post-fight also I'll, I'll check in as much as I can um, for that reason because uh, I I feel like you know the kind of work that I do is um, to an extent you know, you know unique to an extent, and that the work that he does is very unique, and that there's probably a lot that can be gained by the um, exposure of both. But yeah, Jack Slack's the man, dude. Jack's the man. He's got smart MMA opinions. Obviously, his analysis is top of the food chain, and he's been doing it for a long time. He's a smart guy, and he, all his success is entirely deserved. Well, you wrote, who do you think will replace RDA for the Islam fight? The answer is easy. If you guys didn't see the uh, the news, Dan Hooker accepted a fight with Islam Makachev for UFC 267, which is a month away. Dude, Dan Hooker looks at risk assessment and just laughs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, dude, that's, it's not real bright to like fly from New Zealand to Las Vegas in a day and weigh in and fight, you know, with jet lag that can only be described as punishing. But he did it and he won, you know? It's like, dude, it's probably not smart to like have a month long, less than that, like a three week camp. For a guy like Islam Makachev, Dan's like, I don't give the flyingest of fucks. Um, let's go. God bless him, dude. God bless him. I think that, honestly, candidly speaking, I think these kinds of decisions over time might shorten his career a little bit, including some of the beatings that he took. Um, but it will make him a fan favorite, and it is an expression of his personality. So here we go, bro. And by the way, if he wins, oh, my God. Dude, if Dan Hooker wins that fight. Especially in like Dan Hooker fashion, like a big step through knee or something like that. He's going to become, I'm not saying Diaz brother famous, but he'll become like the new, if he wins that fight against Makachev and he wins it in Hooker fashion, right? He'll be something approximating um, the new Condit. Not the legend Condit, but what Condit was when he was first getting going in UFC, like against Martin Campman and stuff like that. You know, a guy who just, you knew, man. He may not win them all, but when he goes out there, A, he can beat good fighters, and B, uh, it's going to be fucking dynamite the whole time. Dan Hooker's a beast. I mean, I, I, if you know anybody who uses the expression unironically built different, it's a guarantee that they breathe through their mouth and... You know, they believe every stupid meme on Facebook. It's a guarantee. Like, I, 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 you know, my team built different. Well, you're you're built different because you've been eating paint chips for the first seven years of your life. But um, but I will say, like, in the spirit of what built different is supposed to mean, Dan Hooker is that. Dan Hooker is built different. Uh, this person writes, you and Dan Hardy are my go-to for technical breakdowns of fights. I know when you watch fights real-time, you see way more than the average person. It's not as true as you think it is. And I was curious if you could provide some advice on how a fan should be watching the fight to really appreciate what's happening in the cage. Well, that's a great question. I do not know the answer to that. Uh, I can tell you how I watch fights these days. Most of the time for a main event, which is obviously you know just one on a card... Um, what I'll do ahead of time is I'll sort of look at the notes. Obviously, I have to prep for my shows. I kind of have a sense of like what the guys do. I might watch a couple old fights that they have. And so I bring myself into a space where I'm like, okay, here's what I'm looking for from each guy. To what extent do they deliver it? And if not, what else do they do? And then how successful was it? So I will take time 
watching one guy at a time, time to time. Sometimes I'll zoom out and just let the action play out where you, you were saying I see more. I actually don't see that much in real time, honestly. Uh, I have to slow down and watch the fights uh, over again with with uh, editing tools and then zooming in and see everything. That's how I get it after the fact. In fact, this is a point that's bothering me. I know there's like a lot, speaking of Rogan, I know there's like a lot of uh, pushback. Well, there was a, I think there was an op-ed in Bloody Elbow. Yes, that's right, because Steven Crowder <laughs> tweeted it and uh, had not nice things to say about Bloody Elbow, which he's wrong about. But either way, he didn't like that there was a piece that saying, saying Joe Rogan should be replaced as a, um, as a commentator. And certainly his role has changed, but the point I'm trying to make is he does less technical commentary, more like DC and Felder and Bisping and whoever else. The fighters, they do the more kind of hands-on, hey, look at this sort of double jab, red cross. Dude, even they miss most of the stuff. Even they do. And I don't mean like, oh, I picked it up and they did it. No, no, no. I, I, number one, I'll not see it. And then number two, they can't see it. Dude, go and look at the Volkanovsky piece that I published yesterday. The uh, the breakdown from his fight with Ortega. And then go back and listen to the commentary. And tell me there is a strong relationship between the two. There is not. There is not. And that is not because DC doesn't know what he's talking about. DC has forgotten more than I know. Uh, it's not because Paul Felder doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul Felder knows exactly what he's talking about. And John Anik certainly is an experienced professional at this point while having no competition experience or formal training certainly understands um you know has a good understanding for the sport from a layman's perspective i think it's a very and probably more than that um it, so the point being is if even they can't get it i don't know who can mma is real weird man because there's the story of the fight as you understand it in real time and then there's the actual story of the fight and they're not the same and they don't get told correctly a lot. And I don't know what the answer to that is, quite candidly, other than people after the fact trying to be like, okay, well, here's the way to understand this to the best of the evidence tells them that they can make those cases. So in answering your question, like I go, I, I generally have a bit of an understanding of what I'm expecting. And I will sometimes zoom out and just sort of let it play out where I'm not necessarily paying attention close to the details. And then I'll take turns watching just one, not like, like, hardcore watching only one but kind of favor one um to see if some things get brought to life where if they're getting backed up oh when this guy gets backed up he'll shoot does he shoot if so how good is his timing does he get under the cross like i'm looking for the details of their game that have been kind of like their fighting signature and then sometimes i just tune out and i just let the action play out and i'm not really watching any one thing I might pick up on details if they're obvious. I tend to, be, you know, obviously the grappling can sometimes be a little bit slower. And, you know, grappling is all about, like, anticipation to the next position. And you can kind of tell where they're going sometimes with that. So I'll do that. Um, but I don't really have a great answer for how, like, how should a fan watch MMA? However you get the most enjoyment, I guess, will be the answer. You know? Do you feel like Volkanovsky had to go through the same thing Usman went through at the beginning of getting the belt? Oh, Jesus Christ. BC is texting me. What is that? That's hilarious. All right. Um, BC is funny. He's all about this uh, 
he's all about this um, doc. Um, that's a great point about Volkanovski and Usman. Um, let me finish the question. Usman was considered still a boring wrestler to some, even if not fair. And Volkanovski, uh, a point fighter, but both to casuals playing it safe and not daring in ways. Usman with the Burns KO and now Volkanovski with the Ortega fight. Breakthrough and allow us to reimagine what's fully possible even to the most basic casuals. Yes, although what's been interesting about... Um, yeah, you know, part of it, there is a bit of a sameness to that, which is... Oh, Kamaru's a boring wrestler, and then you begin to see some improvements in his striking, and then he viciously KOs Jorge Masvidal. You're like, dude, holy fucking shit. You can just see not only this new dimension that's clearly good, you have a Jorge Masvidal benchmark to measure it against. That's why the Ortega stuff was kind of interesting, but would have been more dynamic to like to make it something equivalent. He would have had to like submit Ortega or something, but... At a bare minimum, you saw that like he is going to be extremely hard to put away on the feet, of course. But in that particular case, the grappling context. So you saw this new wrinkle. And then he had that savage ground and pound after. So it was this revelation of like the broadness of their game. But it doesn't really address... And I get it, dude. Like How many times has it, you know, quite literally, you know, dozens of times it, take, it took me to like catch on to what Volkanovski is doing. And even if I have a, a basic clue, I don't pretend to have the advanced clue, but even if I have a basic clue of what's happening, even I have a hard time seeing a lot of that in real time, like all of the wheels turning and the traps he's setting. It's hard. It's very, very difficult. And so for that reason, there might be a bit of a limit. I tend to think, you know, the growth of the game, the new dimensions to it, and then the, having that Jorge Masvidal benchmark, you know, part of that could benefit Volk. But at the same time, I do think he's a little bit up against it with his striking because it's so complicated and it's so powerful, but it's so concealed. He's the ninja, right? He's the ninja. He's the guy who faces off with the guy and then he throws the smoke and you don't know where he is. And then you're getting sliced in the leg and then he runs out and then you're getting sliced in the arm and he's running this way and you can't see what's coming. And so the accumulation of it is beyond impressive, but he doesn't have the traditional hallmarks of what we associate with good strikers, which are these, you know, dynamic punches that consistently sit people down and like these, you know, slipping in the pocket and just, just the ways you might, the ways you might typically associate good striking, he or understand it. He, he doesn't do many of those things. I tend to think that might hold him a little bit. Also, you know, Usman might've stumbled a time or two in promoting a fight or trying to be insulting or funny, but Ortega is, excuse me, uh, Volkanovski is just sort of decidedly, you know, him and Ortega talk shit, but like, he doesn't, he doesn't have the same, you know, being a showman as a vocal advocate for himself is not a strong suit. And I think that might hold him back as well. Um, but like anything, dude, you know, I've seen people be like, oh, Anderson Silva ain't that good. And then look what happened. You know, I've seen people say the same thing about Demetrius or whoever. Pick anybody who ever just did great things. At some point, dude, you just start beating enough people that they like, and it just keeps happening. It's like Tom Brady, dude. You know how fucking much I hate Tom Brady. You know, I keep wait. I keep waiting for uh, for the downfall, and he just keeps. It's just it's at some point, dude. When he's won as much as he's won, you just can't say shit anymore. I think Volkanovski will probably get to that unless Max has something to do with it in that third fight. That third fight with Max, whenever that happens, that's going to be so interesting because if Max ends up winning the third, there's going to be people who go, aha, you see, he should have won the first two. 
and then he finally won the third. Um, even though that may not necessarily be the fairest interpretation, I think that's one that he'll have to live with. So high stakes. Assuming Corey beats Jan for the interim and then Sterling beats Corey again, would Sterling be legitimized as the champion? No, he'd have to beat somebody new. He'd have to beat somebody new, I think. Fair or not, he'd have to beat somebody new. Y'all, I'm trying to get tickets to go see the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team versus the USA rugby team, who are not good. But, you know, is the home team. I'm a, I'm a cheer for them. But they're playing at FedEx in like a couple of weeks, and the tickets are fucking expensive. Another question about Dana and fighter pay. I'll skip that because I've already been over it. What do you think about Volkanovsky's insinuations about Ortega being helped between rounds and treated with a certain regard to not stop the fight by Herb D and the doctor? Yeah, that's probably true. But, dude, that's been happening a long time. I, the fight could have been and should have been stopped after the fourth. The folks are like, oh, but, you know, he had a great push. Ortega did in the fifth. That's really not the point, you know. Um, uh, it's not completely the point, anyway. The point is not like, oh, he actually could keep going. It's what are the risks relative to the rewards and also the possibilities here. You know, given the medical alarming shit that's happening on his face. I mean, he had a broken orbital. He shouldn't have been fighting, right? So, anyway. Um, but, yeah, like, dude, different states and different doctors and different commissions are going to have... Some are going to be lax about it and kind of push the fight forward, and some are going to be very hard-nosed about it. It's just... That's, that's the way it's always been. Would Nick Diaz have won the belt if he'd been active between the GSP era and the Usman era? No. Which brother is better on the mic? Probably Nate. I think Nate's pretty funny, actually. Um, no, the Diaz brothers are... I mean, the Diaz brothers are interesting, right? Because... Let's talk about them in their prime, right? So, pr prime Diaz. Whichever one. They were never going to be the best in their division. Like, we did the resume review. Like, he... You know, when he was in the UFC, even in his second stint... And through his first stint, he couldn't beat Shirk, and he couldn't beat Riggs, and he couldn't beat Sanchez, and he couldn't, although he got close, against Parisian. Like, he's never been the best guy in his division in the world. And I don't think either Diaz brother is going to be. The question is, A, you overall like their fighting style because it's hard-nosed, in-your-face, fuck you, that kind of thing. The second part is, even if they're not the best, they're the kings of styles make fights where they're not the best, but they can give somebody in that division who they ordinarily would not be able to give a hard time, they can give them a really hard time, right? And they can beat them, you know? And you know, whether you want to go with uh, Connor versus Nate or Gomi versus uh, Diaz, well, that in case, you know, he had a claim to be very, very, you know, not if not at the top of the world, pretty close to it with that win. But, um, they you know, they were never just the guy who was going to be the guy, but they had this ability to rise to the championship level or rise to the occasion anyway against the right kind of opponent on the right kind of night. They've always had Diaz magic like that. Um, but, you know, like, do I think that they would have won in the, you know, Hendricks and Lawl you know, that version of Lawler and even the McDonald's that were there? No, I don't think so. I think they, you know, a guy like McDonald, for example, I think he would have taken them down and held them down a lot like St. Pierre did, quite frankly. And that would have been boring. I mean, they, when Condit was around, he just stuck and move and, you know, I remember Condit had to eat shit for a while from the fans, but it that was a perfectly legitimate way to win. It might have been boring. 
it might have been not what you thought. It's fine. But it's it's by the rules and by sort of rational expectations, it's entirely appropriate. And so they were never going to be that guy. No, I don't think that they would have won the belt. But that's never been the point. That's never been the point with them. The point is not that they would win the belt. The point is, if they ever got it, I mean, God help the UFC. But if they, it was, it was you know, to what great heights can they soar on the right night? And, and you know, and then they bring with them this, you know, uh, anti-hero kind of aesthetic. And they're, they're a compelling thing for fight fans. But, you know, people being like, oh, was there a time where he could have been the best in the world? No, I don't think so. In either case. Is keeping John, speaking of John Jones, under contract the biggest punishment the UFC can dispense? Yeah, but like, well, first of all, maybe, maybe not. But more to the point, I don't even like the thought there. Dude, the UFC... People look to the UFC for this the wrong way. Like, this is not... We need, to, we need to think of this more as like the BJ Penn situation. I'm not saying the two are analogous. That's not what I'm saying at all. But in the thing that binds them, the one thing, the through line between them would be the UFC can't meaningfully stop what's going to happen in someone's personal life. You're like, oh, they should suspend him and shit. Like, you know, A, they can't, and B, they just, they won't. And like, they, I know they used to, and it was a weird thing, but like, we're, we're past that. that. Those days are over. Right, those days are over. And so the question that only remains is to what extent does your organization want to be in business with this person for all the good and for all the bad? And I think we're still in a position where the UFC probably considers it still more good than bad. As soon as those tables turn, if they do, then they will make a different one. But what we don't want to do is ask the UFC, oh, keep Penn under um, contractual strangling so he can't fight again. Listen, I don't want to see fight again, but that call ultimately is the responsibility of the athletic commissions and is the responsibility beyond that if the commissions aren't willing to do their job or they go to a place where commissions don't exist of the promoter understanding what is, um, you know, what is the honorable and frankly safe thing to do at this point. We don't want to be in a position where we are asking the UFC, which again has arguable, arguable monopolistic control to then act as the parent in charge of fighters who can't manage their personal lives. That's not their job. And that's not the role of these contracts. That's not that we don't want them. I wouldn't want them doing that at all because while you may ask for it now in this kind of helpful way, and I do think that the intentions are good in asking for it, it will ultimately find itself into a place where it is used punitively to keep, I mean, dude, why was Nick Diaz under contract the last five years? Nobody made any use of him. You know, I'm not saying they were doing it to punish him, but it can have these punishing effects on careers um, when it doesn't need to. I grant that it opens the door to the pens to if they can get a license or if they can get some promoter to to potentially sign them, it does open the door to things. And that is uncomfortable, but it's not the role of contracts to be the to be big dad in the room and I'm gonna do this for your benefit. I don't I don't want combat sports promoters playing that role at all that that you can get down a dark path doing that especially with the way that contracts have no federal essentially no federal protections and can be heavily skewed towards the promoter no thank you
How do I deal with anger? I went to therapy. It ain't much more complicated than that. I think a lot of young men, which is mostly who watch this program, I think a lot of young men think that they can, uh, they can just go to the gym, um, you know, find a productive hobby, really invest in their work, something to distract them or something to give them such focus that the anger couldn't possibly. Um, have a cancerous effect on their life. You will get not very far with that. Let me just sort of let me just tell you how this movie ends. You're not going to get very far like that. Um, you have to address it head on. It is other than if you don't treat it, it will treat you, and it, it is quite as simple as that. It is true that for a healthier life, my experience, and there is some research to to justify this, is you know, for example, Tim Kennedy one time got in trouble for. Um, got a little pushback from veterans. He was saying, in certain veterans groups, he was saying um, that he, he, you know, we he probably saw more than I did, but I've, I've seen my fair share of veterans who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan completely fucked up. And uh, a lot of them were on medications for various um, psychological issues they had developed. And he was really sort of against that, right? His, his attitude was, um, I'm paraphrasing here to a degree because I've had him on my show for it, but he was like, what you really need is you need to go and exercise. You need to get up on time. You need to live a healthy light, eat a balanced diet. If you're a guy, he was just talking to heterosexual males, but like have a girlfriend, have a sex life. Um, you know, live the kinds of things that bring order and balance and normalcy to your life to the extent that your life can be um, guided by those healthy, balanced forces. Many things will be brought into focus for you, and I think order is significantly more achievable. But I would also argue that if you are truly angry at the world or angry at your state in it, you know, I, I'm not suggesting it is impossible to get anywhere without professional help, but I'm telling you for the majority of you, overwhelming majority of you, you need to talk to a professional counselor about this or a social worker or somebody. And everyone in the world thinks it's like, oh, what am I going to say? I don't want to talk about this. Well, then live with your demons. Just sort of get used to it. And what you will find over time is if you let them go long enough, they will just become your personality. You know? That'll, that'll just be who you, you will, that you will be known, not merely as a guy who gets angry. Even you will internalize yourself as, oh, anger is just a part of who I am. No, it has been a problem. It's like jock itch, dude. It's a problem you just left there for so long. You don't. You can't even tell the difference anymore. That's the difference. That's the difference. Um, you have to go treat it. And in that process, while Tim Kennedy, while I would not agree necessarily that the rejection outright of pharmaceuticals is a good idea, I think there are some people who are strong candidates for it and they can be quite beneficial. I also understand the impulse to say there's probably a over- prescribe veterans and I'm certain that that's true and that this other thing you can do of getting sunlight you know having friends you know having a sex life working out getting up early eating right all those things that can pay extraordinary dividends as a lifestyle over time and bring balance and order and focus um to your to to your adulthood but I, you know, there's a lot of guys who write me with problems and I I always write back to the extent that I can the exact same thing dude go talk to a professional <laughs> go talk to a professional. I can I can give you some basic, some very basic life lessons that I've learned. 
some realizations I had along the way through my journeys. And again, I want to state this very clearly. I do not have life figured out whatsoever. Not at all. The little ones here. Did y'all hear that? <laughs> she woke up from her nap. Um, you need to go talk to somebody. Luke, here's a real question. When are you adding some gray to your logo? Yeah, Lord knows that's overdue. Um, you recently tweeted that outside of Max or some mythical Habib-type grappler, I don't see anyone beating Volkanovsky, but could Mosar Evloev or Ilya Topuria not be that mythical Habib-type grappler? Any of those guys could turn into something pretty special, especially Evloev. Um, Evloev, however you pronounce it. But uh, there's still more work to be done. I will say that I do think body lock takedowns are a good uh, are against Volkanovski. Body lock takedowns work better than shots from the outside on singles and doubles. Um, and I think Evloev could give him problems in that regard. But they are still early in their journey. There's more work to be done. Anything I want to add about Jan and Sandhagen? I have to think about that a little bit more. Where do you land on Cowboy Cerrone versus Nick Diaz? Same age and they can both retire afterwards. I'm not I'm not like super high on it, candidly. I think we're trying to do like the senior tour for Nick while he's still in UFC, which is hard to do. Um I don't think the UFC y'all y'all gonna laugh at me. I don't think the UFC is a good fit for this version of Nick Diaz. I think another promoter might be a better version. Frankly, I even think boxing might be a better version for Nick. I think the days of him beating really good or respectable fighters, and certainly Cerrone is a legend in his own right. We're talking about the current state of things. I think he's probably pretty close to retirement. Um, you know, you're trying to you're trying to find a way to make this work in a system not designed to make that work, which isn't to say that you can't. There, there won't be the occasional example of it. The Lawler one worked. The, the Cerrone one might. But after that, it's like... And so to me... Uh, here's the thing, man. I, I I saw Nick Diaz since the Jeremy Jackson f- the fight, his UFC debut in, um, in 2003 or four, whatever that was. I've been watching him since then. Like, I saw the best of him. You know, I... I'm not pining to see this version, candidly. Uh, which isn't to say that like, oh, he shouldn't be fighting. I, I think he could probably still fight, you know, um, make some money. Like, for dude, I, I hope he makes uh, sick bank. He underpaid his whole life. But in terms of like, I mean, dude, I remember where I was when he fought Gomi. Like, I remember all these things, you know. Like, if you experienced that, it just seems to me like this is almost like, for as a, from a fan, like wanting that back is just delusional a little bit, I, I think. Um you're saying, and that's not what you're saying here. I'm not accusing you of that. You know, you're saying they can both retire afterwards. Yeah, maybe. But you're asking me like, where do I land on it? Sure, it's a you can do. You, I think that's a fight that an athletic commission could make. I think UFC could make it. I don't really have an issue with it, but I'm just not like jazzed for it exactly. Um, doesn't do much for me. Should the fight have been stopped after the third when Ortega couldn't get on the stool himself? Yes. Yes, it should have been. Uh, another John Jones. Jesus, it's like fucking forever. 
Um, Here's one. Luke, has a fighter ever thanked you for an insight from one of your breakdowns that helped them game plan their fight? No, but I have had them reach out between fights for some scouting. I've had that happen a few times. Um, all right. How do you view the John Jones situation after the release of the police report? Considering it's true, I think it's fair to assume this isn't the first time he's abused his wife or did it in front of his own children. Um, I don't know if it's fair to assume, but it certainly might be fair to question. I and mean, there is a difference. Do you think a place for him in the UFC can be justified? Um, you know, Kid Nate, the, Nate, Nate Wilcox, the guy who runs Bloody Elbow, once said something to me, and I've repeated it here, and it sort of stands true. If you can't fight in a cage in this country, I'm not sure what you can do. But that's only about his license. That's not about whether he should be in the UFC. Um, I mean, the fight game, I read one of uh, Chuck Mendenhall's game, uh, pieces recently and he had argued like you know the fight game is kind of for the misfits which I think the misfits are supposed to be like the Diego Sanchez types right the guy who the guy who believes in you know, astrology and you know has sort of like a weird breathing technique and has a coach not the last coach but you know the touch button the park guy for Connor that kind of a thing like you always want some of the you want the, you, you want the weirdos you want the fun affects this is not that though this is not that. This is something different. I mean, look, man, he hasn't been convicted of anything, and I'm a little bit hesitant to. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't. I, it, it, what I'll say this, dude. What he's accused of doing, um, if it was my friend, I would probably seriously. If this was like my best friend that did that, what I would probably do is I would probably issue him an ultimatum and say, "You're going to get help under these terms." Uh. Um, and I will help you at every step, but if you don't want to take the help that you need, and by the way, some of that might be facing legal consequences, like face them like a man, um, assuming that that's something that you wanted to do, you know, and I, I would offer him help. I would say, here's the path to get help, and I will spend every effort I can as a friend to take you there, but if you're not willing to do this, I can't be in your life. I, that's what I would do personally as a friend. I would be the guy who... Um, Whatever you need for whatever whatever's related to your health uh, and getting and fixing this, I'll be a part of that. You know, however long it takes, I'll be a part of that. As long as the faith, the effort is good faith, I'll be a part of that. But if they're not willing to do those things, you just you can't you can't have them in your life anymore. Personally speaking, that's the way I would handle it. Um, as a business, you know, here's what UFC's up against. They. John has never really faced any kind of consequence that sent him to a serious setback with law enforcement, like, you know, two years in jail or something, whatever it might be. And so the only relevant concern they had to make is, one, can we still make money with him? Yes, obviously. And then two, um, has what he's done, is, is what he's done been so bad that it also makes us look bad. And to this point, can you argue that it's done that? Like, you cannot. You cannot argue that. Not in a way where, again, the balance between worth it, not worth it has been changed. Um, with just these being allegations and nothing he's been convicted of, I don't think UFC can change that either. But if he gets convicted, even for headbutting and misdemeanor charges, well, the headbutting was the felony, but, you know, misdemeanor, they might, they might, you know, he's going to have some incredible lawyer who I'm sure will. Bring the, I, I, the answer is I don't know. I don't I don't know what the answer is. I can understand them cutting him. Frankly, again, as a friend, I would I would be like, dude, you're going to get this right, or we just can't. 
you know, I'm not going to wish ill upon you, but I can't be with, I can't have someone in my life. I just look the other way on if they're engaging in these acts, you know, and if you're sincere about facing your consequences and getting help, then we can do that. But, um, if you're not, then I'm out, you know, and maybe you guys wouldn't handle that way. Maybe you have a better way to handle it. I, I, I don't, I don't know, but that's the way I would do it. All right. Do I think Volkanovsky could beat Oliveira? Give him a hard time. Uh, all right, let's see what's up with the viewer activity. There's not a lot. <laughs> not a lot of these, uh, 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 what you want to call it? Um, uh, wait, no, there's a bunch of these, right? How am I not seeing them? Hold on. It says the rev is 151, but I'm only seeing three questions. Here we go. Here's some more coming. All right. Uh, is use of professor in BJJ pretentious? I, I'm not sure the derivation of that. I've seen some Brazilians use that. And, um, you know, Lloyd Irvin used that to a degree. I've seen some other ones use it. You know, I, I tend to think that there's a lot of hierarchy to, to BJJ that makes a lot of sense. But I also tend to feel like... Um, these, the martial arts, you know, you wonder, like, how can we get, like, uh, how can it be in, like, is there, you, you, I don't know if you guys ever followed the scandal that followed um, this family involved in Taekwondo. People are like, how could this happen in the martial arts, these sex scandals where people abuse other people? I'm like, dude, the martial arts are built for that. They're built for that. They're built for situations where um, people get revered to the point where questioning them becomes, you know, an irreligious act. And they begin to use these systems to protect themselves for heinous acts on vulnerable students who are essentially taught to not say or question anything. It's, uh, you know, I'll say this, the, having been through two different structures where order and hierarchy is important, like in the military and then in a training room, I can say that the one that I find as a system, the military is obviously much bigger and therefore capable at scale of much more damage. But like I will say, like the religiosity aspect, the the, the aspect of like, um, how would you say it? The the reverence for those above you, the forced reverence, the cultural reverence. Believe it or not, I actually feel like it's worse in martial arts, and that's why you get a lot of these protections, you know, from for heinous actors. Uh, people often forget Jones Reyes took place in Texas under old MMA rules where ring control is level with strikes. John won fair and square then. No, no, I thought John lost that fight. No, he did win a fair fight in the sense that it was executed and the judges scored it and it was what it was. There was no other issue or controversy but other than the criteria itself. But uh, you're asking me, do I think he won? No, I thought he lost that fight. That's the only – That's the only, not even the Gustafson fight. I scored against him. I scored that one against him. I thought that – I thought Reyes won three rounds to two, personally speaking. Am I pro or anti-trolling? Troll culture is internet culture. I find it tiresome and stupid for the most part, but it's such a part of how things operate and frankly um, the dominant culture of how people interact on the internet that it's it's so baked in. It's like, are you pro or against it? It's the rain. Like, are you for or against the rain? I don't know. 
I try to not live in Seattle, but you can't really fight the rain. I just try to wear a raincoat and go about my day. That's sort of the way I look at it. How would a fight between Nick Diaz and Kamaru Usman look like? It would look like Nick Diaz getting absolutely worked like a summer job. <laughs> uh, Kamaru would do horrific things to him. No thank you. Uh, King Artem writes, welcome back, Luke. Hold on here. Stream is healthy. It's weird. I can't quite. I see. Hold on. Let's see here. Let me see something pop out. Chat. I want to see, make sure I can get all these questions that I may have forgotten. Can't seem to see them. I feel bad because I can see that there's been a donation of 162, but I don't see all the questions that got us there. So maybe someone just donated and that's all the questions. Okay. Um... Well, in that case, I'll let these continue. Meanwhile, I will go for a little bit more on the thread. Uh, Bloody Elbow MMA Fighting and a lot of other MMA channels, I think you mean websites, are more like a network, meaning they broadcast different shows from different people and so on. This person writes, Warning Combat is the best. I'm not saying it's single entity because UNBC cover a wide range of variety with the format of the show and the extra content, live chats, rooftop. Blah, blah, blah. I know it's probably not your current choice, and it would have been Showtimes, but would you ever consider or would you think it's cool to have your own network, have other shows under the Morning Combat banner from other personalities like Chuck and Rashad? Um, were I popular enough for that to be a thing? Sure. I'm not even close. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on Ryan Hall rolling with John Jones the day after? Did he do that? I didn't hear anything about that. I mean, I mean that sincerely. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to talk to Ryan, get his perspective on that. Uh, not something I would do, but I don't know what he knew and what was said. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I, 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 people always like want responses to things. I usually have to have considered it a little bit before the live chat to give you any kind of a reasonable answer. I, personally speaking, I would not be a thing I would do, but who the hell knows? Oh, here's an interesting one. Why did you call out everyone else on the COVID downplaying issue, but say nothing about Rogan? Who did I call out on the downplaying issue? I think I made vague, uh, allusions to the sort of the wider worldview rather than individual actors short of there being political actors or uh, whatnot I could be wrong about that you can double check that dead wrong me or write me a note if I got part of that wrong but that's sort of been my general worldview but here's the other part about it to answer about the Rogan thing I mean I don't agree with hardly anything he says about uh, COVID I mean it's probably some stuff we overlap on but I'm trying to, here's one thing I've picked up on over time a lot of people don't want to speak out against Rogan because he's an institution at this point. And like, if you go against that, um, powerful forces is sort of the belief would sort of work their way back around you. And it would just be this, even if you were right, it would be a Pyrrhic victory, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of cost to going up against an empire. I actually don't view it that way at all. Although I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not my view. My view has been, I've noticed, I have noticed if you go after Rogan, 
and or and or you go after Rogan's podcast listeners. Like I mean, like the hardcore ones. All of us catch it time to time, but I mean, like the dedicated, the kinds who are like, dude, you see what David Goggins said on Twitter? No, I didn't. Nor do I care. But that that kind of person. I have noticed if you go after them, everyone in that orbit automatically assumes you're doing it in bad faith because there have been so many bad faith attacks on Rogan. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard, oh, did you hear what Rogan said? It's super fucking bad. And then I'll hear it and I'll be like, well, it's kind of bad, but it's not nearly as bad as it was made out to be. There has been a consistent gap between how his ideas and arguments have been presented uh, and... um, what the, what the actuality of the argument was. I've, I've run into that now a lot. Uh, not every time. Not Sometimes they're right. But enough where like I understand that. So what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to engage with those people in a way where uh, they won't automatically reject you. And if you just go like, how could Joe Rogan say this? They'll reject you. They'll reject you. That's the first part. The second part is here's the basic problem I have with... Um, the way he has, it's his show, he can handle it the way he wants, but the way in which he sort of has viewed COVID, which is, if you look at the way he has lived his life, he might have spoken out about X or Y, but he has, you know, I think he has complied with mask mandates when they made him comply. He has complied with social distancing issues or demands when he was asked to comply. He has complied with lockdowns when he was asked to comply. He has done the things that were asked of him, at least in accordance with the law and the the best practices that he knew of. And, to the extent that he was around other people, it was people who were willing to be there, like you know, people who buy tickets for his shows and whatever. And then with the way in which he has personally taken on the challenge of not being susceptible to COVID, it's you know, living a healthy life to the extent possible. But more than that, he's engaged and he has talked about at length the sort of amount of um, you know, vitamin supplementation that he has gone through in order to protect himself, and then when he actually got COVID, all the other things he did on top of it to stamp it out, including but not limited to monoclonal antibodies, right? I mean, it's a big fucking deal. Those things, they work pretty well, especially if you catch it early and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you guys all know the deal. Now, there's other parts of that, the ivermectin, but the, the ivermectin is like a perfect one. Like I've said on this live chat, like what's the truth about ivermectin? I don't think we really know fully. There's There's... There's no immediate evidence that it's helpful, but it's now being studied. And when I say helpful, I mean towards COVID. But you do have anecdotal examples for whatever that is worth. There are people who say they have taken it and they've felt better. I, that is worth at least hearing out. Uh, and we'll see what the studies say. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. But when they say things like, you know, it's a horse dewormer. Well, yes, there is a veterinarian component to it. And yes, there is also true that there are raids on that where now there is veterinarian medicine that is in short supply in certain places. But okay. As it relates to Rogan, he got it from a doctor, and he got the kind that was administered for humans. And whether or not it actually played a role in defeating his COVID, well, I guess we'll find out over time. But you could see the bad faith approach there. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is all the things he's done is basically like a roundabout way of trying to get to the same place, believe it or not, I would argue, as people who take COVID seriously in the sense that they want to get vaccination and have gotten vaccination. Which is to say, I think he genuinely thought about his life what are people, what are people, what is society asking me? What are people comfortable with? And what do I need to do to protect myself and, you know, within reason, uh, protect others? Because, for example, there was a Glenn Greenwald article recently about this NBA player who was like 23, already had COVID. And his argument was like, why do I have to get the vaccine? I just had COVID. I'll have, you know, as good, if not potentially better immunity, certainly good immunity. Like he ain't going to get COVID 
this season in all likelihood, right? Um, and he's 23. Like, why does he have to get it? Now, I would give to you an argument about this in just a second, but wh why do I bring this up? Like, because, dude, if you're living that particular way, you know, you can argue about whether or not disseminating um, debatable, if not uh, evidence that does not is not supported by the medical evidence on your widespread show about whether or not that's a good idea, right? But do you want to censor that? I don't know if you really want to censor that. So then it brings you back to what the basic argument is. I think that people like that are genuinely trying to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Here is the problem with that, though. This is where it all comes off the rails for me. Two problems. One, that solution of like, take a bunch of vitamins and zinc up front. Dude, when my wife got COVID, the doctor recommended zinc. I'm, take zinc. Like, I'm sure it is good for you. You know, I, I believe in that. That is not a scalable solution. Like, you cannot scale that. Like, okay, America, here's the deal. Good news. You can take a vaccine, and that'll be great. And if you don't want to take a vaccine, you can take this fucking list of horse pills. When I say horse pills, it's a joke my fraternity brothers used to mention to me because I would take pills. This giant size, these multivitamins. You can take the fucking giant multivitamins, not the ivermectin joke, um, every day as a preventative measure. And then when you get it, you can just take this shitload of medicine. Dude, who is going to do that at scale? At scale. Because this is the problem with COVID, dude. It's killed a lot of people. It's killed a lot of people. So almost 700,000, almost one in 500 people. That's a fuck ton of people. It's just not scalable where enough people can be convinced to consume and have at the ready access to these kinds of interventions. It's not to say that it doesn't actually work. It's just it can only work in these very limited circumstances, right? That's one problem. The second problem is, um, you know, it's weird to be like, you should take good care of yourself as a preventative measure, when the reality of the vaccine is that's a preventative measure, okay? So there's a contradiction about the value of preventative medicine in both practices and application there. That's the second problem. The third problem here, and this is a little bit more substantive to the point, is that like, dude, this is whenever someone asks you, what do you think about this part of the vaccine, that part of the vaccine? I'm like, dude, have y'all talked to your doctors? <laughs> It's, it's, it's the ultimate checkmate. And you could say, oh, well, I, I, there's people who are going to lie on the internet and they're going to pretend. That's not what well, my doctor said. Bullshit. Who's your doctor? I'll call him up right now. Dude, if you go to your doctor with very, very, very infinitesimal exception, they're going to tell you to get the COVID vaccine because it's from an evidentiary perspective at scale by far the best choice. And everyone can pretend that they read on clownpenis.fart. No, no, no. I know somebody who got it and they got real sick. Yes, there are the occasions where that happens. Dude, the evidence is not ambiguous. And if you want to pretend that it is, you are entitled to do that. But I don't, I'm not going to join your fiction. And I'm going to ask you and everybody else out there, including Joe Rogan, dude, what does your doctor say? And your doctor might say, you know, listen, there are some other ways around it and blah, blah, blah. But dude, what is the best medicine at scale as an intervention to tackle this dude there's one answer to this we are not going to ivermectin our way out we are not going to mask our way out we are not going to socially distance our way out we're not going to do any of that way out the only way out is the vaccination way that's that is it that is it at scale as an intervention it's the only one it's the only one there's no other possible answer to this question um so you know what i'm trying to get across here is um, in thinking about the way in which he has handled the situation, to me it is unfortunate. And by the way, there's a, I am fully willing to grant that there is a completely different debate between like, is the vaccine a good idea? Should you take it? Is it good medicine? Is there a reasonable reason to take it? 
uh, versus what about mandates, private or public? I think these are largely separate questions. But it goes back to the same NBA player. He's like, why do I need the vaccine? In all, in all likelihood right now, the guy who had COVID already, who's 23, he probably doesn't. Like my wife was already vaxxed and then she got a really mild case of COVID. But now look at her, dude. Like, does she need a booster shot? She had COVID and she's got the vaccine. Like, you know, <laughs> you're not, you're not going to get COVID anytime soon. Like it's not going to happen. Right. And so that, that's a good thing. Um, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is, um, I lost my train of thought here a little bit. What was the thing? Why do, why do I let off on Rogan a little bit? Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is I want to understand these people uh, 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 as best I can. And I want to understand that their reasoning on this is. But, dude, it goes back to a very basic question. If you, healthy, 25-year-old male, goes and talks to your doctor, tell me what they say. And I know there's going to be a bunch of people who pretend that their doctor didn't tell them that. Or they're going to pretend they talked to their doctor. Or they're going to pretend that their doctor was just like, yeah. And don't give me this bullshit like, oh, I found this doctor on the internet. That said this was a good idea. Guys, there are people losing their medical licenses for this on, at state uh, uh, medical boards for, you know, um, speaking out. Not be like, oh, that's censorship. No, that's the Hippocratic Oath, motherfucker. That's what that is. Dude, the 23-year-old guy who had the COVID, the reason why he can't be a carve-out exception is how do you create a policy for that? Right? How do you create a policy for, like, everyone has to get the COVID vaccine at scale, except blah, 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 blah. And of course, there can be the exemptions for health and whatever, these known conditions where um, it, it may not necessarily work for those kinds of people. But the point being is, now you have to establish some kind of medical board that has to review all the different cases. Do you think that these are philosopher kings are going to get it right? Where like, oh, we can give this person a carve-out and not, and what if they give a person a carve-out and then they actually end up getting COVID and ends up spreading it? Like, the, the the reality is you can find individual cases like a Joe Rogan who I don't really consider in terms of the way he has personally acted about his own COVID and the way which he lives his life in any way really he's not really the problem you could say what you want about the messaging on his podcast but how he has personally handled it I don't think he is the problem but you can't make policy around that dude and this is the last thing I'll say and I'll leave it alone because I know everyone hates the mask and all this kind of stuff talk there's a lot of people being like, well, I was against vaccines, and now that, lit, dude, literally 95% of the military has gotten it, got it half, half of walking humanity has gotten it. All this boogeyman about it's going to cause all these problems. It's just bullshit. If there's any criticism of the vaccines, that it's not strong enough. Not that it's too strong. Um, lost my fucking train of thought again. God damn it. You see how you get me on a fucking rant, and then I just lose my mind? Um, you can't create policy. Oh, yes, here's what I'm going to say. Dude, these are people, and this is a question for folks out there who disagree with me on this, and I know there's many of you. And if you've listened to this, I appreciate it because I know you fucking hate this shit. So I, 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 I genuinely thank you. But the thing you got to ask is, dude, there's been people at every step of the way, and it seems like it's the same characters, although certainly I cannot prove that. So I'm only telling you what my hunch is, not what a fact is. Every step of the way, there was a problem with masks. And then there was a problem of like how COVID deaths were counted. And then there was a problem of, well, okay, they're real, but how many deaths really matter? Death is just a part of life. And then it was um, the social distancing is too much. And then it's, uh, you know, the lockdowns are harsh. And again, the lockdowns, there's fair criticisms of all of these things. None of these things are above reproach. All of them deserve to be questioned. 
But then the vaccines came out. Now the vaccines are not safe. Now it's the vaccine mandates, whether they're public or private. And again, these are debates to be had, but they're automatically against those two. It's like, dude, at every step of the way, there has been a strain of rejection of not just what the best health experts in the fucking world are telling you from a evidentiary standpoint is very strong cases to do some, many, or whatever these things. It's that the person just has decided they're going to care about themselves and they're going to say that my responsibility in society is not to, my, my role in the health of broader society is merely to maintain my own health. I do not play a role in public health. Dude, it doesn't work on some level, on some level for public health to work. It requires broad participation. And this idea that people want to opt out at every, if you want to opt out, like I'm against lockdowns, I'm against masks, but I'm pro-vax, but I'm against masks mandates. These are situations I can work with. I can work with, I don't want masks, I don't want this, or I don't want the vaccine, but there's some kind of other intervention that I'm in favor of. There's a consistent thread from the people who are like, they're just against it. You have to stop this or slow down Reddit, rather. You have to have some kind of intervention, a policy, a writable policy intervention to slow and then to some degree control the spread of COVID. You cannot have any policy where you just let it run rampant. That is simply untenable. It will overrun health systems. It will cause massive widespread deaths. And more to the point, and you could say, oh, it's vulnerable people. Well, they're people. We also need to reckon with this idea, by the way, like what will it do to our health institutions to just have them constantly in a state of siege, right? Go to the ER in your hometown and see what it's like. There were, there were so many people at GW when my wife went for her issue, when her toenail got completely ripped off, that they didn't even have space on the sign-up sheet in the fucking lobby. In the, I've never, I've been living in this city for 20 plus years. I've never seen that. I haven't seen ERs like that here since not, not even 9-11. Like, not even close, dude. It, what will it do to an already crumbling... Uh, a series of institutions and, and systems to just be in a state of siege like that. Dude, it will not result in better health care over time. It will not. There's also a question about what's to be, what to be asked there. So what I'm telling you is, at some point, if you're against the vaccines, fine, be against vaccines. What is your intervention from a policy standpoint to control and slow the spread of COVID so that it can be kind of like the flu and the cold and we can more or less move on with our lives because just saying I'm going to let it run free like a toddler before bath time you are not to be taken seriously you are not to be taken seriously and to call the vaccines unsafe you are not to be taken seriously you can't be where there's just not evidence for it at scale at scale broad evidence at scale what can you implement from a policy that's the problem that's the that's the that's the underlying challenge to all of this and so being like, I'm going to do what the CEO of Sweet Green Salads is like, just eat more salads. What are you fucking out of your mind? <laughs> you can't get Americans to the gym before the pandemic. You're going to get them there now? This is totally out to lunch. It's completely delusional. You have to know what is the best available medicine. What do we know about the best available medicine? And what policies can we write around it that makes sense? And what role do people individually have, however minor, in the broader question about public health. That's it, bro. All right. If there's any more of these, I will answer them. All right. And then we'll call it a day. Favorite horror movie. Uh, 
Cabin in the Woods. I'm not a huge horror guy. Cabin in the Woods. I need a pickup line in Spanish for women at work. <laughs> I've used this one before. Um, yeah, don't say this, but si quieres chuparme, mis pelotas están aquí. Mis huevos están aquí. Los dos. Uh, what do you make of Fizaya's game? What does his potential look like? And how does his game stack up against the bleeding edge Volk Izzy Max? Well, we haven't really seen the full totality of his overall MMA game, including the clinch and the takedown component, so I would wonder about that. Um, but his... And he's a little willing to take damage when he doesn't have to. Like Volkanovski, look at how much he... Again, go back and watch it. He puts his hand up to escape, or he uses his feet to escape. Like he doesn't doesn't get hit a lot. I think Fazayev might get impacted by that because he's a little too willing to just give a show. But when he is delivering and when he is mindful of his defense, he might be one of the best strikers in, in the UFC. When will Dana White retire, dude? I think Dana White. I've really been thinking about this. Unless it's a health related issue, which I would never wish on anybody. I think he's going to do the Bob Arum thing. People in the 60s must have been like, dude, when is this fuck Bob Arum <laughs> retiring? Bob's like, at my deathbed. I, I tend to think Dana's going to be the same thing. I will see, but I tend to think it's you're going to get... He's a lifer. Well, but, you know. Listeners are crying foul in the YouTube chat because I can't scroll up and see the questions. I can only see the questions they give me. If I, here's the thing. If I've missed them, I'll do a separate one where I answer those. And so it's an apologies. I can only do what I see. Let me see if I can find a way to watch it now. And I'll turn the volume off. I tend to think it's... All right. So let's see. Where is... Yeah, I can't... I have to go back and look. I can't see them here. So if I miss them, I'll do a separate one where I address them. If you leave the money, I'll do it. But I can only see what I can see. <laughs> In your experiences, do you get caught typically the first, second, or third? I'm a third guy. It takes a few times where I get too confident. All right, somebody left a question where they're asking about John. How many times has he probably done this before? I don't know, but it's fair to spec to at least question. How far would DJ have made it in the first three UFCs? Hard to know against the really heavy guys like an Emmanuel Yarborough, but short of that, I, he probably would have won. Considering Amanda is up 2-0 over Valentina, wouldn't that mean Valentina needs to beat Amanda three times to be considered the GOAT? Not necessarily. The first time she lost fair and square, the second time is highly disputed. If she goes up there and puts it on her the third time, and then continues to have success after that, I think you could, uh, I think the debate changes. And last but not least, how excited is the Thomas household for the Colombian movie from Pixar? I think it's Disney, but maybe it's Pixar, Encanto. Have you guys seen this? The new movie, it's coming out in November. It's like the, the, the new animated movie from Disney, or maybe it's Pixar, whichever, uh, no, Pixar is part of Disney, but I mean, there can be a difference. Um, in any case, it's called Encanto. It takes place in uh, Colombia, and it's set under sort of this this uh, uh, setting of it's the setting of uh, magical. They incorporate magical realism, which comes from this this idea from perhaps Colombia's most famous author ever, um, 
And they took that concept and kind of made a cartoon out of it with all of these Colombian references and colors and whatnot. And, dude, in my house, it is big fucking news. Big news. Super big news. They can't wait. They can't wait. In fact, I think it's going to be my daughter's first movie in a theater, which she'll probably cry and shit herself and spoil because, you know, that's just kind of what happens these days. But, um, but yeah, it's a big deal. Okay, one more time. If I miss the question, I will get to it. Don't worry. I can't see it, so I will try, but you get the idea. For everyone who watched, thumbs up. Thank you. I appreciate it. I will get this podcast up as soon as possible on the podcast feed, and then I'll put a link to it in the description box below. Excuse me, in the uh, comments below. I'll pin it to the top, and we can go from there. Okay? Thank you to everyone who contributed. More on the way.